performance of uh, Hong Kong China at the Asian Games, which ended on Sunday, and what it's likely to mean for the further development of sports in the territory. With about uh, 660 athletes uh, travelling from here to Hangzhou, uh, this Games saw the largest number of competitors to date from the SAR and a record-high medal tally of 53. That total included eight golds in swimming, fencing, rowing, golf, rugby sevens, cycling and bridge. And from football to kabaddi, uh, Hong Kong was represented in 40 different sports, including eSports, where our team won a medal for the first time. What does uh, success at the Asian Games tell us about our sporting potential and how can we build on it to give a further boost to the SAR's role as a sports hub? At 9.45, we'll be talking about uh, a recent incident at a construction site in Hong Kong where uh, five workers and a police officer were injured by a wild boar. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Joining us now uh, here in our studio in Kowloon Tong, we have uh, Jackie Chan, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at the Caritas Institute of Higher Education. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Ada. And also on the line, we have uh, Tricia Leahy, who's a chief executive of the Hong Kong Sports Institute. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning, everybody. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, Jackie Chan, um, we can start with you. Uh, a sure. very exciting uh, two weeks of sport, uh, welcoming home ceremony uh, yesterday. Uh, what, what did you think of uh, Hong Kong's uh, performance at the Games? Uh, I can say uh, amazing. Yes, uh, not only in terms of the number of medals, but, because, uh, but also the, the performance achieved by the young generation. Yeah, uh, I've also... Uh, doing some mini uh, research about uh, the age. Actually, from the uh, bronze medal, medalist, uh, the age is about uh, 27 something, but uh, the age is greatly decreased to silver medalist and gold medalist. And the gold medalist, the FH age is about 25. Mm. Yeah, so that I can, or some some parties can foresee uh, that weight of achievement in the future uh, so, so so how do you account for that the, uh, the 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 younger the competitors the higher chances they have of uh, winning a gold medal rather than a silver or a bronze um, at least I know uh, the youngest uh, generation uh, they are they probably they can sustain greater training competitive level mm. so I have that kind of I foresee so we have always been quite strong in um, fencing and rugby sevens. Uh, we got a medal in Jakarta and cycling. Uh, this time we have uh, e-sports and we have bridge and um, golf, uh, you know, uh, players uh, winning medals. How, how do you see that, the diversification of the, the different sports? Uh, just uh, when we're looking at uh, this kind of uh, sport, we call it uh, mind sport. For example, the beach and uh, and the e-sports actually is a good direction for our new generation to develop this kind of development. But of course, compared with the others' economic scale, in case we are such diverse development, it's very important for us to prioritize the resources. 
for example, team sport, individual sport, racket sports, it's, it's not that easy to evenly distribute it. Okay, uh, Tricia Lisi, good morning. Good morning, good morning, Jim. So, um, so Kenneth Falk, the head, the head of the Hong Kong de delegation, said uh, uh, the success of the team uh, was a testament uh, to the, uh, the training systems implemented uh, through the Hong Kong Sports Institute uh, yourselves. So, uh, um, how are you feeling about the way uh, the Asian Games went? Well, I, for us, we're very proud of the athletes and the results that they had this time. Um, and as Jackie just mentioned, the diversification um, and the young athletes coming up and the number of records that were broken, these are all very positive signs for us. But I would point out that after every Asian Games, uh, when the athletes come back, um, you know, RTHK is asking the same questions. Oh, this time was a huge breakthrough. You ask the same question after 2014. You ask the same question after 2010. So mm -hmm. I think it's time for us to begin to recognize that the elite sports system in Hong Kong uh, is consistently producing athletes with medal standards at the Asian Games. And this in large part is really thanks to the collaboration between the government and its funding system and the Hong Kong uh, Olympic Committee and the National Sports Associations and the Hong Kong Sports Institute. So as we're all playing together in partnership, the beneficiaries are the athletes and the training that they're able to undergo and getting them ready for the competition, which of course is our, our major focus. So once we have the right funding, the right collaborations, then you can see the trend is um, very predictable for Hong Kong sports. Right. Um, uh, you mentioned that a lot of organizations got together, um, you know, so that, you know, we have more medals. So um, was this the, the only factor? So what, what else did we do right? For example, in I, the coaching, training and etc. Now, when it comes to that, that technical evaluation, um, at the Hong Kong Sports Institute, we have a well-established uh, system which identifies clearly the critical success factors for moving an athlete onto a medal podium. Um, central to that is, of course, the coaching. Uh, next is also the sports science, sports medicine, both the servicing as well as the research and sports technology areas that we're working in. And, of course, also we need to provide the athletes with access to overseas competition because Hong Kong is a small place. So for athletes to hone their competitive skills and become mature, uh, sophisticated competitors, we need to constantly send them overseas, we send them into mainland, we have very strong links and collaborations with our counterparts in the mainland. So some of these areas are really important to moving athletes forward. Now, on top of that, we also need to ensure that athletes have access to ongoing education and personal development programs. And in the past few years in Hong Kong, we've had some major breakthroughs in the provision of flexible education for athletes such that they're able to train full time at an earlier age. For example, in uh, 2013, the uh, education university is one of the first universities to start offering very flexible extended graduation time programs for the athletes so that they could remain training full time and we weren't losing them into the education system. In 2015, the Lam Dai Phi College and the ESF school system 
set up uh, flexible education programs for the high school level athletes. And then in 2022, following a series of uh, MOUs that we had signed with the various universities, the UDC uh, made a system-wide policy that all athletes with significant sport results would have direct access into university. The implications of all of this is that now we have a very strong uh, elite athlete professional career path that parents and young people can get on board with, recognizing that they don't have to sacrifice their education and development. They can stay in Hong Kong and they can be trained here, still get their education. And what we're seeing in the Asian Games this time is the fruit of all of that collaboration. So these critical success factors, I mean, the, the government has mentioned the $7 billion of the last 10 years. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic, but it's not the money. It's how you use the money and how you identify the critical success factors. And now moving forward, the next challenge for us is the critical evaluation of what we've done today, how we're going to adapt and change and move everything forward again. And that's a constant process of critical evaluation for a sports institute like ourselves. After every game, when the athletes come back, we do the same in-depth review, looking to see where we can find the marginal gains for next time. And that's uh, an ongoing process of evaluation, and we're just about to dive into that right now. Okay. Um, I have an email here from a, a listener, TC, which is, is uh, relates to... Um, what you were just saying, actually, uh, in some respects, uh, says TC says, while I applaud the success of athletes from Hong Kong, it's a bit ambitious for Hong Kong to make itself into a sports hub. How much infrastructure is there in Hong Kong for elite level sports? And like everything else in Hong Kong, how much land is there to support these infrastructures, uh, even if you want to create a sports hub? So, um, um, Trisha Leahy, you, you, you were saying, you were making the point that, you know, Hong Kong is a small place and we've got to uh, we've got to send our athletes uh, overseas uh, or to the mainland or to different places to expand their experience and training. No, I think what I said, Jim, was that we send them overseas to gain competitive experience mm. because the domestic uh, competition scene wouldn't be as large as it is overseas. And that's not uncommon with other places. Everybody sends their athletes overseas for competition. Of course, we do do training exchange. Um, and that's also very common internationally. Everybody's doing this as we're all trying to find the marginal gains moving forward. In terms of facilities, at the Hong Kong Sports Institute, we um, have over 110 meters squared of space, including training venues, places for athletes to live. So for the elite level athletes, we definitely have world standard training facilities for them. And we're just in the process of finishing another new building, which is a 9,000-square-meter footprint, um, which will include more venues and an, an enlarged sports science, sports medicine center to further um, service the athletes. So all of these uh, coming online uh, hardwares and the software that has to come along with it are very positive, I think, reflection of the government's understanding of the needs of elite sports. And of course, coming up soon, we have the Kaitak Sports Park, which is going to be an absolutely fantastic showcase in Hong Kong. Yeah. And I do believe yeah. will attract a lot of international events to come here. Um, on top of that, don't forget in 2025, we have the uh, Greater Bay Area National Games, of mm -hmm. which Hong Kong is one of the co-hosts. And that, again, is going to be a huge boost for local sports. 
I believe, and a huge boost for the athletes' results because when you have a home game, and for us in Hangzhou, of course, that was pretty much a home game. Um, so the athletes tend to excel when they're playing and competing in front of their families and their friends. So it's all looking very positive from my perspective. Mm. Good, good. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, Jackie Chan. So, um, uh, Treasure Lee, he was talking a little bit earlier about uh, critical evaluation as the next step of uh, Hong Kong's performance. I mean, how do we like kick on from uh, from the Asian Games to you know develop our sporting abilities and uh, prowess further? Uh, I want to add one point. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's about the uh, recent cash incentive uh, scheme. Uh, Actually, we we read a lot of news about uh, this uh, cash in incentive scheme. For example, uh, for the gold medalists, they will be uh, awarding with uh, over one million dollars, uh, and even for the team, they will uh, a maybe a, a double. But uh, I want to have a question about a dilemma between the development fund and the and the achievement driven approach, because actually, uh, this kinds of uh, scheme can be very uh, can be very rewarding mm -hmm. and also it's kind of appreciation to our our generation of uh, athletes but actually in case we can have a better allocation for, uh, in the in in the process of development then maybe we can have a better culture for physical activity and doing sports is one point and the area is about uh, Actually, according to last year, the policy address, as mentioned by uh, Dr. Uh, Teresa, mm. uh, we we have to put a lot of resources in the infrastructure. Mm. So uh, within a very small area in Hong Kong, so that we have to keep a, a good network with 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 the with the mainland, with the foreign countries, so that we can send our uh, our our athletes to do the practice. But it's very disappointed to compete. Uh, Yes, they take ten years is a blueprint to to build up thirty sport facility, so that we do a very simple calculation in each year is we only have three facilities. Of course, it includes uh, the multi sport uh, center in Whitehead Mountain and one in the northern uh, metropolis. But uh, from the perspective of the effort and the citizen, the blue piece is not that large. Yeah. So that I have that questions. Mm. Uh, it's related to the values of the government. But um, uh, apart from hardware, of course, we all need hardware, and there is the um, for uh, you know forever dilemma about um, building the facilities for for the general public so that you can you know uh, popularize sports or you build more facilities exclusively for elite training and um i i don't know what what uh, you know what is the debate now but um back in my days as a district councillor and an urban councillor um this has always been the key question uh, Trisha Leahy. uh should we do more in popularizing sports and you know pick the better ones when they're very very young or is that system uh you know pretty much um uh, intact and um, you know can be developed further, or you know should we do more for for our, our elite athletes? I think there's no conflict, Ada, between these two issues. We have to work everything within a system, and I believe that that's what's being done. Now, Jackie mentioned the athlete incentive awards. 
Um, no, the athlete incentive awards are awards that athletes get for winning medals at the major games. This is funded by the Hong Kong Jockey Club, not funded by the government. So the award system is um, a separate issue from the government funding for the development of sport. And of course, we're very grateful to the Jockey Club because this is a fantastic recognition, a very public recognition of what it takes for an athlete to be the best in Asia to be the best in the world if it's the Olympics. Um, so we're very happy with that. Now, in terms of um, development, uh, in Hong Kong, the Leisure and Culture Services Department, as well as the Culture um, Tourism Bureau, Culture Sports and Tourism Bureau, are taking care of the development of sports. Now, can we do more? Yes, of course we can. I think it's really important that as we move forward, that we start um, improving access to young people, particularly at school, particularly at primary school. I don't mean that they should be training early and becoming elite athletes, but they should be physically literate so that by the time they come to a national sporting association, they get picked up on a talent identification program, their basic physical fitness and physical literacy, as we call it, is very sound and very well developed. And then we can start honing their skills in the particular sport for which they appear to be talented. So all of that is an ongoing, um, an ongoing movement. And you know we're having this conversation now in Hong Kong. I can guarantee you, every single other uh, place around the world has the same conversation after every major game. We're all evaluating how do we bring on more young people. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's not an either-or question. We can do everything at the same time. And I think Hong Kong is an example of where, with our centralized relief system, our uh, excellent relationships with the governing bodies, with the Olympic Committee, and with the government, we're all able to work together for the benefit of the athletes. And that's why we are now coming to the attention of our international counterparts who are beginning to ask us, well, how are you doing this? with such a small population, not just small in numbers, but small in size, but we're still punching far above our weight category, if I can use that analogy, when mm. it comes to major events. And I think that's something we should be proud of. Mm. Mm. So, uh, Jackie, yeah, um, um, that's, uh, when we see uh, our athletes doing well, when we see them receiving medals, it's inspirational, right? Um, uh, it makes uh, young people sort of want to follow suit. Do you, do you get a feeling that uh, the culture here is changing towards sports? Because for a long time it was said that you know most Hong Kong families, most parents were more interested in their children's academic development rather than sporting achievement. But uh, do you detect uh, any change in that now? Um, uh, in fact, uh, the news, the achievement from the recent, uh, no matter it is the Asian Games, or the university uh, sport competition recently in in July. Actually, we heard uh, some parents uh, put put some resources out of their family expenditure uh, on fencing, as mentioned by Ada. They were key on major sport event. They would put they would intend to put some resources on some sports, but actually, it's not that healthy because it's just from one wave. Or, or the second wave from this uh, sport event. But after it, we, we have to uh, observe how long it will sustain. Because uh, no matter how, how large is the, is the resources, 
actually quite de- determined by the achievement of, of the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and after each major event, I know that we always talk about um, uh, successorship, uh, successorship and uh, are there more talents in the pipeline? So, Trisha Leahy, we are all really amazed and proud of uh, Miss Hohe, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, she, um, as a swimmer, you, you see more swimmers uh, who are younger and who are willing to endure very, very difficult training. And um, I believe I read a story about her and, you know, going to a secondary school every day and uh, practicing in early morning hours and, you know, really, really hard uh, life. Mm. Um, do, do we have these people around? Yes, indeed. I mean, if we didn't, then we wouldn't have these results. So we really, uh, you know, Jackie mentioned how inspirational it is for uh, young people when the athletes uh, come back and they're such positive role models and each athlete whether it's swimming or cycling or rowing or any of the sports they will tell you um, it is not an easy job being a professional elite athlete it's very very hard work and every day you're doing the same hard training trying to perfect your talents trying to perfect your giftedness and they come back and they are such positive role models they put such a positive impact on the community, and I think that is something that also we should value. Now, in relation to the question that is the culture changing, absolutely it is. Jackie mentioned quite correctly that previously uh, many parents would prefer uh, their child to study rather than going into sports. Now, we did a big research on this in around 2014, 2015, and we found that the majority of parents said that they would not allow their child to be an elite athlete, even if they had the skills, because they felt it was uh, unpredictable, they felt that, you know, they weren't sure about access to education. And we repeated that study about a year and a half ago, and we found that the vast majority of parents now say, yes, I would allow my child to become an elite athlete. Uh, So the culture is definitely changing, and that's due to Hong Kong collaborating with the different agencies, with the education sector, with the different sports sectors, to produce a system that caters to the needs of the Hong Kong athletes, both their sports, their um, education, and don't forget, once the athletes retire, there's now a uh, another award scheme where they can access a significant amount of money as a one-off grant to help them start on their next phase in life. In addition to that, the Hong Kong Olympic Committee has a very uh, mature program for helping them if they want to be uh, get more access to education or if they want job opportunities. They also do that, and we have funding for the same purpose to help them get access to more education. So it's a very comprehensive basket of options that young people have now if they're gifted in sport and if they want to take that forward. And I think we're seeing the outcomes of that, both at Tokyo Olympics and now at this Asian Games and at previous Asian Games. It's an ongoing and evolving process. Mm -hmm. As the Hong Kong Sports Institute, our responsibility is to keep, as I said, critically evaluating. We have this idea in elite sports that we're always looking for marginal gains. If you get a marginal gain across a number of parameters, that ends up in aggregate being a big change and you can really make a difference between a medal and not a medal. But now what we're looking for is microscopic gains. Marginal is not enough. We need microscopic gains. 
So luckily, the government has also, after the Olympics, funded us with $300 million to be able to invest in this kind of micro-technology, sports technology, sports science and medicine research, which allows us to start looking for these microscopic gains. Now, we've been activating that program with the local universities, um, with excellent partners from all around, and we're now beginning to see the trickling effect of some of those research pieces which are actually helping the athletes in their performance. So um, we're very positive, again, moving forward, that if we keep doing the right things, then uh, we will start to see these gains. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, don't forget, it takes about eight years. We're talking about the young people and the next generation of succession planning coming up. It takes about eight years to get a young person ready to compete at the international stage. That's a long time. And then we need another eight to 12 years from them at the top so they can keep reproducing the results. So we're very proud of the athletes that we currently have and look forward to seeing them at the next uh, few editions of the Games. And at the same time, we're now developing, or uh, it's an ongoing process. It's not a a stopgap process. Okay. Um, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt uh, Trisha Lee here. Yes. I've, got, I've, got to, I've got, to, got to stop you there for a moment because we need to take a short break for a news sure. summary and uh, a couple of announcements. But we'll return to this topic uh, in about three minutes. Uh, we're also going to hear a little bit about uh, uh, esports as well because uh, don't forget uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, also won a medal in uh, esports uh, this time for the first time. Um, a quick uh, look at the weather. It's going to be cloudy with a few showers. Top temperature around 27 degrees, moderate to fresh, east to northeast winds the outlook sunny periods in the next few days uh, and dry during the daytime it's currently 25 degrees humidity 83 percent and here's Haley Yip with the news a meteorologist has hit back at criticism that the observatory gave insufficient warning before raising the typhoon number nine signal on Sunday night, stranding people as most public transport stop. Leung Wing Mo, spokesman of the Hong Kong Meteorological Society, says a timely warning of T9 stoppages was more the responsibility of transport authorities. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that airstrikes against Hamas targets in Gaza have only just started, and Israel is now fighting for its existence. A spokesman for the armed wing of Hamas said it would start executing Israeli hostages if Israel bombs more civilian houses in Gaza without prior warning. And a study by Britain's Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew has found that nearly half of the world's known flowering plants could face extinction, mainly through habitat loss. In the most comprehensive report to date on the state of the world's plants and fungi, scientists say some 100,000 species are under threat. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Carers have been taking dedicated care of family members in need round the clock. I'm so exhausted. Can someone help? People around carers could lend a hand to support and ease their burden. Families, neighbors, and our society can build a carer-friendly community. Let's help carers take a break and show our support. Carers in need may call the designated hotline for carer support, subvented by the Social Welfare Department, 182-183. It's nice to go outside in good weather. But before taking part in outdoor activities, check the weather forecast on the My Observatory app. Thunderstorms can develop quickly. One moment it's sunny, the next it's thundery. It'll be even more dangerous if it comes with squalls. If a thunderstorm is approaching, stop the outdoor activities and find a safe shelter. 
pay attention to weather forecasts, thunderstorm warnings, and announcements at the beach. Stay safe and enjoy the outdoors. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And welcome back to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And we're going to uh, continue our conversation for the main part of this morning's programme about the uh, development of sports in Hong Kong. That's uh, that's following our success uh, in the Asian Games. Um, we have uh, with us uh, Tricia Leahy, Chief Executive of the Hong Kong Sports Institute, uh, Jackie Chan, Assistant Professor in the uh, Department of Health Sciences. That's at Caritas Institute of Higher Education. In just a moment, we're going to hear um, about um, esports. Um, I'll be introducing a, another guest, but uh, just before I do that, um, um, Trisha Leahy, sorry I had to uh, cut you yeah. off a little earlier. Do you, do you just want to finish the point that you were making about the, the, the time it takes to uh, develop uh, athletes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so as we are moving forward and, and as we have to manage our expectations, you know, and Ada mentioned about succession planning, one of the... Uh, um, key areas of our current five-year strategic plan was a refocus on youth and building up our youth cohort within the elite sports system. Because, of course, you remember what happened during COVID. Uh, mm. Most sports venues were closed. And the young people, uh, for almost three years, really didn't have access to systematic training. So this is a big gap, and many, many other areas around the world are similarly dealing with this issue. So we set some strategic goals in our current strategic plan to really reinforce um, our talent identification schemes, our support for young athletes, and we are now moving forward with that uh, in terms of the flexible education, which is extremely helpful to them, and bringing them earlier in to full-time training, which we can now do, uh, because they can study across the road at the Lundi Fai College, and we can, um, they have like half day schooling, and we can bring them over here for extra training. Mm. So everything is moving in the right direction, but it's really important that we keep the momentum going. And I do believe that uh, sport policy is a priority of the government because I think we can all see the positive impact of sports when the athletes come back with excellent results and they aren't just excellent role models. Everybody benefits from this. We're telling positive Hong Kong stories. We're experiencing positive Hong Kong stories by the athletes' achievement. And I think going forward, I'm very confident that the government will keep supporting the athletes in the way that they need. Indeed. Great. Well, um, as uh, mentioned earlier, Hong Kong also, for the first time, uh, won a medal in uh, eSports, uh, uh, a silver medal. Um, we're joined uh, now by uh, Eddie Chen, uh, who is Eddie is uh, president of the eSports Association of Hong Kong and also uh, uh, the leader of the eSports uh, delegation. Um, <clears throat> Eddie Chen, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jim and Ada. Good morning, everyone. So, so um, congratulations on uh, the, the the Hong Kong China team uh, winning a medal in esports. Uh, this is a yeah. kind of competition using uh, video games, isn't it? Perhaps, perhaps yes. you could just tell us a, a little bit more about uh, what it involves for those of our listeners oh, okay. who may not uh, be too aware. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, this time uh, we have uh, won a uh, silver medal in the Dream Free Kingdom game. Actually, mm. it is a uh, game uh, consists of uh, five athletes as a team. And uh, the game format is uh, using the PC as a platform. And this is a kind of a multiplayer online battle arena game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so Hong Kong lost, uh, Hong Kong China lost to uh, mainland China in the final. Yeah. What, what's it, what, <laughs> what, what, what is the, uh, what, what, what's that actual game involved? The, the, uh, the dream. Three Kingdoms 2. Dream Three Kingdom. Yeah. Okay, actually, the Dream Three Kingdom is like a uh, kind of the uh, is uh, like a kind of uh, other games like uh, the League of Legend or the Dota 2, uh, which is uh, more popular in the Western countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, this game uh, was developed by a uh, mainland developer. And uh, because the game uh, was not published uh, in Hong Kong before, so that our athletes have only got uh, four months uh, of time uh, to practice uh, and uh, and our and our players um, um, uh, know, uh, knew that uh, they need to put more efforts to practice in order to get better results therefore um, uh, some of our players uh, they decide to quit their jobs <laughs> one mm. month before the match mm. and then in order to have more time uh, to practice because uh, all of our athletes uh, of the Dream Free Kingdom team uh, they are part-time players that means that they have a full-time job in the daytime mm. yeah so that uh, they have put quite a lot of efforts uh, in order to win this uh, silver medal yeah right um any chance so how how do you how do you pick um your team and and the players uh-huh. so this is a new oh. sport it's a mind sport yeah um uh, Trisha Lee, he was saying that we need uh, eight years uh, to prepare athletes i i don't think that you need eight years to you know to prepare an e-sports athlete Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, actually the average experience of our player this time, I think, is around five to six years of playing uh, different uh, different esports games. Uh, how do we pick the players? Uh, we uh, we are using um, kind of uh, because. Uh, there are quite a lot of different uh, competition uh, hosting um, uh, in every month, uh, so that uh, we know that uh, uh, which uh, player is playing the best uh, in in the specific game. Uh, therefore, we will uh, have some kind of qualifying uh, sections uh, before the Asian game, and then uh, for uh, for the individual games, then we can just pick the best player. But for some uh, team game like this. Uh, uh, Dream Free Kingdom. Then we have to uh, we have to like uh, construct a team uh, so that uh, we will have a coach first, and then our coach will uh, pick different athletes uh, from the pool of the best athletes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this is the uh, method that we choose the athletes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well let's ask our other guests as well. Uh, uh, J- Jackie Chan, how do you see the the future development of esports? Uh, it's very interesting because. Uh, we got an inspiration from the achievement of the esports. Uh, they they consist of uh, four male participants. It's a kind of culture in Hong Kong because uh, not many parents uh, evalu- evaluate the kinds of sports as a positive event mm. sometimes. For example, they will spend a lot of time, uh, as mentioned by uh, Eddie Chen, uh, it's not that easy. They have to pick up the appropriate players time to time have a evaluation regularly is two different respective 
Yeah, as compared as the uh, we, we call it uh, normal sport uh, in Asian Games, uh, amount fifty three medals. We we got uh, twenty seven medals from females events. Mm. Yeah, but uh, in this sport event, we have all male participants. And also in bridge. Yes, also in bridge. But of of course, bridge uh, we have uh, two uh, two. Division one is uh, for, right. for for boys, uh, from, one for male, from, and one is for female teams. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, Tricia Lee here. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I've heard some people who actually questioned the inclusion of uh, mind sports, if you like, like you know, like bridge or like esports in uh, an event like uh, the Asian Games. What what do you think about that? Well, first, let me say a huge congratulations to Eddie because mm. uh, that was a fantastic performance from those athletes winning a medal in esports and we should be equally proud of them. Mm. Um, and I think one of the advantages of a multi-sport event like the Asian Games is that we see a huge diversity of experiences allowed for the athletes. And I think um, you can't question that. Uh, everyone should have the opportunity to show their giftedness in a competitive environment and have access to... Uh, the praise and accolades when they do well. There are many different, not just Olympic sports in the Asian Games, but there are also very specific, as you mentioned, kabaddi and uh, different kinds of Southeast Asian sports. And that's the whole ethos of the Asian Games, is to provide diversity, and I think that's something to be applauded. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and how about you, uh, uh, Eddie Chen? How, how do you see the development of uh, esports in the future? Mm -hmm. uh, I see that uh, as the eSports audience and revenue has been growing rapidly in the recent year. So uh, I think uh, it will gain more mainstream recognition and more new fans. And uh, moreover, there will be more games designed for the eSports in the future. Uh, and then we can expect the growth of the mobile eSports, especially in the Asian countries. And also there will be more professionalization like the players, teams, coaches and all the other roles, the commentators will become more specialized and professionalized like the traditional sports. And last but not least, uh, there will be more collaboration with the traditional sports. The traditional sports will integrate with more electronic form of playing and become uh, what uh, we call the virtual sports right now. Yeah. Do you, so do you see the development of esports uh, being uh, you know, driven by technology? Uh, yes, definitely. There will be more technology integrated like the XR, VR, AR, yeah, something mm. like that. And mm. we can see that there will be a uh, demonstration uh, title for the Asian game this year, uh, which will be held uh, two weeks later in Hangzhou. Mm. Uh, there will be a uh, VR game, uh, which is a uh, free versus free shooting VR game. Uh, that will be a demonstration title in the Hangzhou uh, uh, eSports. Yes. Right. So, and Eddie Chen, uh, surely there will be challenges. How do you, um, you know, how do you talk to the teachers and the parents of, of the younger people that esports is yeah. actually a sport and um, they should not, um, you know, forbid their children to play? 
Okay, uh, that's a uh, that's a, uh, that's a challenge that we face over twenty years because I've been in this industry for over twenty years, and uh, at the very beginning, uh, from the parents that are very uh, not happy uh, if their children are playing the uh, video games, uh, but right now uh, the parents uh, know that uh, uh, first of all uh, the um, the children can earn money uh, in this esports industry because the industry is uh, is emerging very rapidly and then moreover uh, there will be more jobs opportunities for them and then uh, uh, there are more and more multi-sports uh, like the Asian game, uh, the Sea game, the Southeast Asian game and also the Asian indoor and martial art games uh, and uh, more and more like this kind of multi-sports game uh, including the esports. Uh, so I think that the uh, esports is more and more recognized in this year and also so we can uh, see that uh, the price pool, the price money of the eSports game are becoming uh, bigger and bigger. Uh, right now, we have uh, we have uh, quite a lot of uh, different uh, international uh, eSports uh, tournament, which with the price pool uh, of over uh, one million Hong Kong dollar. Yeah, right. and uh, therefore I think um, the parents are uh, right now. We 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 have always uh, get some calls from the parents uh, 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 calling our association that uh, they would like to uh, groom their children uh, to be a eSports player in the future. <laughs> yeah, I think so it's totally different from the before. And yes. our, other guest, our other guest, Jackie, uh, also said that there's a gender bias uh, in eSports, Eddie. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. how do you uh, attract more female players? Mm, okay, that's a good question. Uh, actually, we have um, uh, we we know this problem, uh, so that uh, there are some uh, there are some uh, tournaments which is for the uh, female only because we need some time uh, to groom up our female athletes. Uh, as we can see that uh, in the past uh, esports tournaments. Uh, uh, we we have to admit that most of the athletes uh, or the players are male, yeah, and so that it would be quite difficult for some uh, female to get into the uh, esports tournament uh, from now because uh, they have uh, short experience. Uh, um, so that uh, there are uh, more, there are some uh, uh, female-only tournaments uh, happening uh, right now. Uh, for example, we have we joined a uh, female uh, CSGO Asian Championship tournament uh, in the Riyadh of Saudi Arabia a few months ago, and our Hong Kong China team won the uh, silver medal as well in that tournament. Yeah, so that uh, that will be helps us to uh, groom the uh, female athletes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, Eddie Chen, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks very much for joining us uh, on this morning's uh, program then. That's uh, Eddie Chen, president of the Esports Association of Hong Kong, China, and leader of the uh, esports uh, delegation at the Asian Games. Uh, uh, looks like we're out of time. Um, sorry about that. Uh, thanks uh, very much to our other guests, uh, Tricia Leahy, chief executive of the Hong Kong Sports Institute, and Jackie Chan, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences at uh, Caritas Institute of Higher Education. Hopefully we'll, we'll all be able to uh, speak again uh, soon. Of course, uh, next year we've got the, the Paris Olympics uh, coming up, which uh, should be uh, another time of uh, uh, big uh, attention and uh, excitement. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello audience of RTHK. 
I'm Paul Chan, the Financial Secretary. This year marks the 95th anniversary of RTHK. I wish RTHK every success in starting a new chapter for public service broadcasting. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. And uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're turning our attention uh, to another topic, and uh, that is uh, an, an incident, uh, well, um, <clears throat> resulting from an incident that uh, happened recently when uh, five uh, construction workers and a police officer were injured and uh, had to go to hospital. Uh, that's after uh, they were attacked by a wild boar in the construction site uh, where they were working. Uh, this was on uh, Stubbs Road uh, in Wan Chai on uh, Hong Kong Island. Um, there have, as we know, there have been a, a number of uh, incidents, uh, uh, mostly sightings, of course, of uh, wild boars, uh, not just in country parks anymore, but uh, sort of coming into the urban areas. Uh, uh, to talk about this, uh, we're joined on the line by Karina O'Carroll, who is the Education Welfare Manager at Animals Asia. A good morning to you. Morning, how are you? Uh, good, thank you. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Thank um, you, yeah. So, so this was uh, obviously a, you know, a rather unfortunate uh, incident, five people having to go to, uh, to hospital as a result. Um, what was your assessment uh, uh, of this? Uh, and why do you suppose it happened? And why was the, why was the boar uh, there on Stubbs Road at the building site? Well, first and foremost, obviously, we hope that all the injured uh, recover from their injuries and wounds and um, make a speedy recovery as well. But it was, uh, from what I've read, obviously not being there myself, but in the media uh, and the reports on the case, it does seem like the element of surprise on both sides was one of the issues that could have um, led to, obviously, the injuries. Um, it sounds like the boar was trapped in a confined space, being in the lift, in the lift shaft yeah. of one of the construction sites. Um, it's obviously an unfamiliar environment for a wild boar um, and I don't have a sort of an assessment on the actual site itself but um, there could be a number of factors that had the boar end up in the construction site in the first place so um, I think just obviously when you encounter wild animals you know this whole element of surprise I don't intentionally feel um, that the boar um, actually attacked these people. If, if, it, if it was in a lift shaft inside a construction lift and the doors open and there happened to be people standing there, I believe out. that the boar would have tried to find the fastest exit mm. away from the people and unfortunately they were just in the way, um, mm. perhaps. So it just to me sounds like it was an unfortunate accident. Um, it, you know, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, do yep. do, um, do wild animals like boars? I mean, I guess they tend to panic if they feel as if they're trapped in a confined space. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that with the situation and obviously the past ones. I think the uh, other one was Fotan, um, you know, and just spaces that are unfamiliar to the boar are going to have the animal in a heightened sense of awareness anyway. And obviously in close proximity to people, they are going to likely try and find the quickest escape route and get away from those people and unfamiliar surroundings. So I do feel like the past two cases at least have just been unfortunate timing, wrong place, wrong time, and both the animals and the people ending up very surprised with the situation and unfortunately injuries occurring. Yeah, and um, Karina, what does it tell us about um, the wild boar population around that area? 
Well, from figures that we've been following at least um, over the last sort of since, uh, you know, a couple of years um, with the issue with wild boar um, occurring more and more, um, from the government's own estimates, we have approximately 2,500 to 3,000 wild boar in the territory. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't seem like a huge amount. But obviously, when we have such a small space for both humans and animals, the opportunity for conflict arising is um, increased. And so there are a couple of different factors that seem to be playing a very causal role in um, human-animal conflict with the boar, and that tends to be obviously development, so reduction of their habitat and spaces, but also as well, and I would say more, um, you know, more causal would be the element of uh, rubbish management and disposal, um, and also as well feeding of these animals. So um, once sort of animals such as well boar lose their sort of fear and an innate fear of humans, um, you tend to start, start seeing them approaching people more often, having more incidences of conflict, um, and really coming, as we've experienced here, coming more and more into the urban environments because they've lost this element of staying away from people and seeking their own natural food sources. So mm. there's a couple of different issues going on with the situation with the wild boar, and there's a couple of different solutions or ways to be dealing with this that need to be happening in tandem, which we feel at the moment could be done better so mm. and and usually wild boars uh, do they do they sort of charge at people and and attack people uh, only when they are you know uh, panicking or yeah, well, from my own experiences and what I know about these animals, um, generally you are going to have a boar charge at you if they're fearful, if there's an element of surprise, if you're in too close proximity, or if unfortunately the animals have become habituated to human contact through feeding or trying to have interactions with them. So, um, you know, in, again, in my experience with boar over 28 years here, I've seen them multiple times and never had an incident of one charging at me. Um, and it's just a matter of human behavior, how we react to these situations happening, um, you know, screaming, shouting, jumping, trying, trying to throw things at them is only going to make the situation worse. And so, so what, really, what's, uh, what's, the, what's an appropriate behavior? Well, I would say definitely if you're in a situation where you're confronted with a wild boar and you're feeling fearful, back away as slowly, as quietly and as calmly as you possibly can. Giving distance with these animals is one of the best ways that you can avoid a conflict with them. Um, also, as well, if you're really in a serious situation where there's a board that's quite close that doesn't seem very happy, finding an elevated point to get up onto. So, you know, in an urban environment, might be perhaps the top of a wall or a car or hiding behind a tree or something that gives, again, um, a distance or a barrier between you and the animal. Um, if there's a boar, unfortunately, again, that's habituated to feeding and you're carrying shopping, drop the shopping, give it up and just keep backing away. Um, you know, so it's just a lot of these things may seem like common sense. They obviously may be difficult to enact if you're in that situation with fear or panic setting in. But really, the best thing you can do is give space, give distance, keep calm um, and don't try and obviously throw things or shout or scream or jump around because that tends to probably just make the boar feel a bit more f afraid right. of you and feel threatened and likely then probably charge so that that makes a lot of sense but i i think uh, we need more education 
Absolutely. Well, I know the government um, has done quite a bit of public education work and trying to do some research as well as other NGOs on the behaviour of wild boar and how we can sort of um, better tackle the education and public behaviour in regards to these animals. But um, we also need to be responsible in some way, shape or form for the rubbish and the waste issue and also FEHD uh, needs to be involved in that aspect as well, being their management area that, you know, the rubbish collection points that we have, the way that we dispose of our rubbish and the access of rubbish to wildlife um, needs to be much better dealt with um, in Hong Kong. I know we've had different designs of bins and there's been a, a couple of student projects in regards to animal-proof bin designs um, and some of them have been effective so it's kind of been a trial and error situation over the last couple of years getting the right design but ultimately you know it's our human behavior. We are going to be in close contact with these animals. They are native species to Hong Kong. Um, they shouldn't be eradicated. They are part of the ecosystem and so we have to find a way to coexist with them, um, but also as well manage their populations in a humane way, um, but also as well as, as humans interacting in the same space as them, um, find better ways to behave in regards to encounters with them. Okay. Le uh, let me ask you something, if I may. Uh, sure. uh, wild boars, are, are they present like uh, throughout the territory? I mean, the reason, reason I ask is uh, I've, seen, I've seen them often in the, in the new territories. I've seen them on Hong Kong Island. Yeah. I do quite a lot of hiking on Lantau. I've never seen any wild boar on Lantau Island. They're pretty hardy animals and mm. the terrain and the environment that we have in Hong Kong from my knowledge is pretty um, good for their survival and um, and they do tend to seem to thrive in our environment and spaces but anywhere where there's green space um, you know is a potential habitat for these animals so it could be urban it could be rural um, but you know again it's a preference for the animals of what food sources might be available for them and unfortunately in an urban environment if the rubbish element outweighs the natural forage then there's issues with that and obviously them congregating in those areas where rubbish might be easily accessible or where they're being fed by people so it really just depends on the resources that they have available um, as to their preference of where they might be yeah i have uh, anecdotal stories that a lot of hong kong people and hikers they still want to feed the wild boars uh, mm. Uh, despite the fact that um, the agriculture and fisheries uh, department you know, have um, like banners up and uh, warning signs, yeah. how, how do you see that? Well, I think the messaging, obviously, you know, it may come across as being quite severe and quite stern and quite harsh. Don't feed these animals. You're going to get prosecuted or fined. But in actual fact, the reasoning behind this messaging is because the minute that these animals lose that fear of people and they become habituated to human contact, the person that feeds them might be okay with that co close contact with these animals. But actually, you know, 10 other people who come after the feeder won't be so comfortable. And that's when the risk for... Um, you know, conflict occurs, but also as well, the situation of feeding these animals ultimately for their behavior is putting them at high risk of obviously having the situation of culling happen to them. If they keep being habituated to food, human foods, and people, and human contact, right. it's just going to encourage them to do these behaviors more, sure. which then obviously puts them at higher risk of needing to be managed so, in a humane so, way. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. So, don't feed the boars. That's, uh, that's got to be the message. Thanks very much for speaking to us uh, this morning. Karina O'Carroll, uh, Education Welfare Manager uh, at uh, Animals Asia. Thanks to our uh, co-host, uh, Ada Wong, and thanks to our producer, Raphael, and Soundman James.
RTHK, the news at 10 with Haley Yip. A vehicle has crashed into the Chinese consulate in San Francisco, prompting a massive response from police and fire personnel. The San Francisco Police Department said officers had fired their guns at the site of